Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Stores influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Boomers from just €18.72. half price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of €50 or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Eli Stutzman was born into an Amish family, but he was never able to toe the line and follow the strict rules laid out by the community. He valued his freedom, and not only was he willing to kill to get it, he was willing to kill to maintain it. This is Monsters. In the early 18th century, many Amish and Mennonites immigrated to Pennsylvania and then Ohio and Indiana. Many of the people who immigrated to the U.S. didn't retain their strict Amish beliefs, and many either separated from the church or joined Mennonite groups that might have been less conservative. The main group of Amish who settled in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, became known as the Old Order Amish, which is where some of the most conservative Amish groups originated. One of these groups was the Schwarzentruber Amish, who were part of one of the largest Amish settlements in Ohio. They're also the most conservative, allowing almost no technology within their community. Many Amish communities allow indoor plumbing, pneumatic tools, and chainsaws. The Schwarzentruber Amish do not. Many Amish are allowed to use cars as long as they don't own them, but the Schwarzentruber Amish aren't even allowed to ride in cars unless it's a dire emergency. Eli E. Stutzman was born on September 28, 1950, in Apple Creek, Ohio, to Eli H. and Susan Stutzman. 
Eli H. had been in a farming accident when he was 18 years old that left him a few fingers lighter and earned him the nickname One Hand Eli. Eli E. was the fourth of 13 children and was said to hate farm work, which was not in short supply in an Amish community. What he did like was lying. His family said he learned to lie at a very young age and became good at it. His father would try to remedy his son's dishonest tongue with frequent whippings, but Eli was a rebellious kid. It seemed that the more his father punished him, the more he resisted his control. In the Amish community, the youth go through a rite of passage called Rumspringa. The Amish school their own children up to the 8th grade, at which point they believe they are prepared to lead an Amish lifestyle. This leaves them open to begin Rumspringa between the ages of 14 and 16. This term just means a period of adolescence to the Amish, when the children are expected to act up a little more, so punishments are a little less severe. It's a time period where they're allowed to break the rules a little bit and figure things out for their own. It doesn't mean that all of the children are leaving the community to live in the modern world. There are TV shows that focus on Amish teens going out during Rumspringa, partying, and doing drugs. But that isn't the norm. At the end of Rumspringa, sometime between the age of 17 and 21, the youth chooses whether they're going to be baptized into the Amish church or leave the community permanently. 90% of Amish youth choose to be baptized into the Amish church. If they choose to leave the community permanently, they get what's called a ban, which is a type of excommunication, where they're no longer allowed to participate in activities with other people from the community. Generally, if that happens, other members of the Amish community will encourage them to return. Eli and his friends would spend their rumspringa drinking beer and playing pranks. When the youth were 16 years old, they would be able to start attending gatherings called singings, which were held on Sunday nights as a place for boys and girls to meet and begin a courtship. It was at one of these singings that Eli met a young girl named Ida Gingrich. Ida was born on July 4, 1951 in Reedsburg, Ohio, which was less than 20 miles or 32 kilometers from Apple Creek. She told her sister that she immediately liked Eli and she thought he felt the same way. The couple began dating and worked toward finding their place in the community. In 1971, Eli became a teacher at the local school. It was a one-room school and he was paid $140 a month, which worked out to be $950 today. Eli didn't stop being defiant and eventually moved out of his family home and lived with a couple across the road, Mose and Ada Kiem. In February of 1972, Eli collapsed on the stairs in the Kiem home. The Amish religion doesn't restrict people from using modern medicine, but they tend to prefer more alternative approaches. Eli first saw an osteopath, which is someone who focuses on healing through manipulation of the body's muscle tissue and bone. By the time the doctor saw Eli, he had been in bed in and out of consciousness for nearly 24 hours. The doctor recommended that he stay put and rest, but after a few weeks, there wasn't any improvement. Mose said that Eli's nerves were shot and that his muscles were all tensed up. Mose brought in a foot reflexologist who uses pressure points in the feet to heal various parts of the human body. Unfortunately, the reflexologist said that Eli's feet were too sore and she wouldn't be able to help. Next, they tried a chiropractor, which was said to finally alleviate some of whatever it was that was ailing the young man. Eli had lost his job as a teacher, so he was doing what he could to help the Kayams out on their farm. Eli also asked to start attending Kayim's church. Though they lived close to the Stutzmans, they were not Swartz and Truber Amish. They were Old Order Amish and lived a less strict lifestyle than their neighbors. 
Eli was attracted to that more relaxed lifestyle and took the opportunity to upgrade his buggy with more modern features that weren't allowed in the Swartz and Truber church. One hand, Eli was not happy about his son's behavior and believed he was suffering from mental illness. By May of 1972, the elder Eli spoke to the doctor who suggested they have the sheriff come and have him involuntarily committed to Fallsview Hospital about 40 miles, or 65 kilometers north of Apple Creek. Young Eli spent three days in the mental hospital before being released. This solidified his desire to leave the Swartz and Schuber Church and join the Old Order Church. Who would have thought that committing your son to a mental hospital would make him want to be around you less? It's not like he was out doing drugs and committing crime. His father was upset that he had moved out of the house, at 21 years old, mind you, that he had asked for a raise at work, and that he wanted to add some more modern features to his horse-drawn buggy. These were the indications that Eli was mentally ill. Eli only attended the Old Order Church a few times before his interest in church went away. He was hanging out with non-Amish, what they referred to as English, friends, and was seen driving cars. In the summer of 1972, Eli was excommunicated from the Old Order Church. Eli was already planning to leave the Amish religion, and the threat of not being able to have meals with his family was a small price to pay for his freedom. Eli went to live with a New Order Amish family at Stoll Farms not far from Apple Creek. They were more progressive when it came to electricity and technology. The family, Liz and Leroy Chupp, helped him transition away from the Old Order Amish lifestyle, and Liz even helped him order non-Amish clothes from a JCPenney catalog. Eli got his driver's license and bought a 1970 Oldsmobile. Stoll Farms became a common workplace for young men who were leaving the Amish church. Eli's cousin, Abe Stutzman, ended up there, as did Chris Swartzentruber and John Yoder. Chris was obviously a direct descendant of the founder of this sect of Amish. People in the Amish community shared the same names due to only marrying within the small community. After Eli left the church, he had a few dates with a girl named Lydia Stutzman, who was from a Mennonite church in the area. Ida was still in love with Eli. She wrote him regularly, encouraging him to return to the church, but it was no use. Eli was enjoying his life free from the strict guidelines of the church. Eli was also enjoying the freedom to casually date other women. One woman he dated was Rebecca Yost, who would end up getting pregnant. Eli gave her money so she could have an abortion. In 1973, Eli bought his friend, John Yoder, a pair of red bikini underwear for his birthday. Now, not only would this be an odd gift for someone to give a friend for their birthday, but it was more unusual to someone raised in a conservative Amish community. They were forbidden from wearing underwear because the elastic waistband was considered to be too worldly. I wish I was making this up. Eli tried to get John to try them on, but it was way too risque for someone who had a limited experience of the non-Amish world. In late 1974, Eli was involved with the Wayne County Sheriff's Department, helping them bust a couple of farmers that were growing and selling marijuana. Eli had called the alleged pot farmer and asked if he could buy some pot to help with headaches. Not long after the sale was made, Eli delivered the drugs to the sheriff and they quickly arrested the dealer, making it obvious that Eli was the snitch. After that, Eli claimed that he had been receiving death threats and warned the sheriff and the families that lived at Stoll Farms. They tried to keep their eyes out for anyone suspicious, but on November 19th, Ed Stoll found Eli laying in a puddle of blood in one of the barns. 
Eli said that two men had jumped him and hit him with rocks. He fought back, even stabbing one of them with a pitchfork. But the two got the better of him and stabbed him. He was rushed to the hospital, where doctors said that he lost so much blood he nearly died. The sheriff's department was blamed for using Eli for the drug bust, but not doing enough to protect him. It wasn't long before people started noticing that Eli's story didn't match the evidence. The cuts on his arms were much cleaner than someone would expect to see if someone was cut during a violent struggle. They also found a straight razor in the barn that had Eli's blood on it. Then the sheriff took the threatening letters that Eli had received to Stoll Farm to compare the handwriting on some of them. They matched Eli's handwriting. He compared the typed ones to a typewriter that Eli had in his room, and it also matched. Eventually, Eli confessed to setting the whole thing up himself. It was a stunt that almost cost him his life. It normally took Ed Stoll about 30 minutes to do his last hay haul of the day, but that day it took him about an hour. When he returned to the barn and found Eli, the young man said, quote, What took you so long? End quote. Which Ed thought was an odd thing to ask at the time, but now it made a lot more sense. Eli had been laying there bleeding a lot longer than he had planned on. After being released from the hospital, Eli went back to the Stoll Farms where he recovered. He would frequently leave the farm and be gone for days at a time, and during one of his absences, Mary Jane Stoll found some magazines tucked under the mattress in his room. The magazine contained pictures of men engaged in sex with other men. Mary Jane burned the magazines and never brought it up to Eli. On February 10, 1975, Eli was fired from Stoll Farms. Eli told people that it was because he caught Ed Stoll stealing from a farm equipment store and he was fired out of retaliation, but that wasn't true. Eli then shocked everyone when he agreed to return to the Schwarzentruber Amish church. He went in for confession, sold his car and non-Amish clothing, was rehired by the school board as a teacher, and professed his devotion to Ida. In Ohio at the time, a blood test was required in order to get married. The Amish community wasn't exactly sure what the test meant, they just assumed the results were God's will. If the test came back negative, it meant that God didn't want those people to create offspring. Eli and Ida's blood test had come back negative, twice. In reality, it was the state testing potential couples for venereal disease and Eli had contracted syphilis. Just when Ida was about to give up on her dream of marrying Eli Stutzman, he showed up at her house with a positive test. He claimed that he drank some herbal tea and that it fixed his blood. Some people assumed that he had found someone to doctor the results, but the Amish community wasn't known for asking a lot of questions, so at the end of the day, Eli and Ida were finally set to marry. The couple married on December 25, 1975, and only a few weeks later, Ida would find out she was pregnant. People started to notice that Ida would be left home alone quite often. She didn't know where Eli was or when he would be back. Once, after a night of drinking, Eli offered a friend who was giving him a ride home $25 if he let him give him a blowjob. The friend rejected the offer. Eli increased his offer to $60, but that just got Eli kicked out of the car. On September 7, 1976, Ida gave birth to a son named Daniel. The baby was delivered by a midwife in the community, and at the baby's first doctor visit, Eli requested that Danny get a complete series of vaccinations and wanted him circumcised. Two things that were not forbidden in the Schwarzentruber church, but very uncommon. About six months later, the Stutzmans agreed to purchase a 95-acre farm from Chris Schwarzentruber's brother. In the spring of 1977, the family moved to the farm and began their simple Amish life. 
Not long after, Ida learned that she was pregnant again. Eli did a good job pretending to be reconnected to his community and devoted to his faith and his family, but inside he was screaming for the freedom he once had outside the church. In May, the Stutzmans went to a local bank and applied for a loan to pay for the farm. Eli had been making payments directly to Daniel Schwarzentruber, who had sold him the farm, but it wasn't uncommon for the Amish to secure a loan to pay the seller in full. The bank considered it low risk because the Amish had a very good credit history. They also didn't have other bills that would make their mortgage payment harder to make. It was common for the bank to give the loan amount directly to the seller, but since the type of loan that Eli got didn't require him to use the loaned money for what he said his intended purpose was, the bank gave the money directly to him. He continued to make payments directly to Daniel Schwarzentruber, who didn't even know that Eli had gotten a loan for the purchase of the farm. Ida was also left in the dark about the funds not going to pay for the farm. There was a storm in the area on July 11, 1977. The Stutzmans had one of Eli's younger cousins, who was also named Eli Stutzman, living with them so he could work on the farm during the summer. Eli had come home that afternoon and told cousin Eli that he had seen lightning hit the barn and needed him to help find where it struck. The two got onto the roof, and Eli pointed out where he said lightning had struck and poured water on it, but cousin Eli would say later that he didn't see anywhere on the barn that looked like it had been struck by lightning. That evening, an attorney came to the farm to go over the details of the Stutzman's will. It was a standard will that said if Eli died, everything went to Ida, and if Ida died, everything went to Eli, and if they both died, everything went to Danny. The attorney took the information and would have to type it up and have them sign it after he was finished. After he left, the Stutzmans all settled down for bed. Eli, Ida, and Danny all slept in a bedroom on the main floor, and Cousin Eli slept in a bedroom upstairs. Cousin Eli woke up at about midnight and said he saw a bright light outside. He looked out the window and saw the barn was on fire. He ran downstairs where Eli was outside moving farm equipment away from the fire. Eli told the younger boy to run to the neighbor's house and have him call the fire department. As Cousin Eli ran off, he noticed Ida laying on the ground. He tried to get her up, but she didn't respond. The young boy returned to Eli and told him about Ida. Eli told him to run to the neighbor's house and also call for a doctor. Before Cousin Eli could get to his destination, neighbors from across the street, Howard and Sue Snavely, were awakened by the sound of the fire. As Sue called the fire department, Howard ran across the street to ensure the Amish family was aware of the fire. He was met by Eli, who yelled at him to help him get his wife out of the barn. He told his neighbor that she was trapped in the barn. He directed Howard just into the barn where Ida was laying on her back. He said something about her having a heart attack, and the two carried her away from the blaze. When they set her down, Howard checked for a pulse and couldn't find one. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. No. 
good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. When the fire department arrived, they immediately began dousing the barn with water, and Howard yelled to the fire chief that Ida was injured. When the chief checked out the woman, he confirmed that she was dead. He asked Eli what happened, and Eli explained that she had woken him up after the fire started. He told her to go call the fire department and she left, but when he went to the milk barn, he saw her lying on the ground. He assumed that she had had a heart attack due to the smoke. He explained that she had a weakened heart that was a problem since she was a child. By the time cousin Eli returned from the other neighbor's house, he had no idea that Eli had yelled at Howard to help him get Ida out of the barn. Howard noted that Eli seemed more concerned with telling the firefighters about the lightning that caused the fire than he was about his wife and unborn child. When the sheriff arrived, there wasn't much question of Eli's story. The barn was clearly on fire, and everyone seemed to just assume Ida died as a result of the fire. The medical examiner noted the burns on Ida's body. They were all consistent with high heat as opposed to direct flame. Ida was supposedly in the milk barn for some time before being pulled out by Eli and Howard. She had burns on her hand like she grabbed something hot and it scalded her skin. The medical examiner noted that she had cuts across her forehead and a laceration in the corner of her mouth. He wondered how she got these injuries if she had fallen onto her back. The blood from the injuries was bright red, which indicated that it happened when Ida was still alive. When Ida's family asked Eli what had happened, his story to them was a little different. He said that when he told her to go to the neighbor's house to call the fire department, she asked if she could remove some things from the milk barn and he told her to hurry. Then he told them that when he found her, he attempted to do CPR for 20 to 30 minutes before carrying her away from the barn by himself. The sheriff didn't disclose the trouble that Eli had been in in the past to the medical examiner, so based on Eli's story of his wife having a bad heart, he could only assume that Ida died as a result of the fire. The extreme heat was too much for the young woman's heart, and she had a heart attack while in the barn. The sheriff filed the report and didn't question the death any further. Danny had been asleep in his crib as the fire raged in the barn. When neighbors and other locals became involved, he was taken to a friend's house and remained safe during the ordeal. Now, Eli was a widowed father. The Amish are a trusting people, but many couldn't help but be suspicious of Eli's story. Over the next year, family members helped maintain the Stutzman farm. The Amish community donated the labor and materials to raise a new barn, which was done in a single day. Ida's sister stayed at the farm, and some family members thought that Eli might marry her, but Eli wasn't interested in remaining in the Amish church. During this time, Ida's twin younger brothers had stayed the night at the Stutzman farm. During the night, both 15-year-old boys would later recall waking up to Eli rubbing his erect penis against them. They said they ignored him, and he eventually stopped. On the one-year anniversary of Ida's death, Eli had another nervous breakdown. The sheriffs arrived at the farm and took Eli back to the hospital, where he stayed for a week. When he was returned to the farm, he was medicated, but his behavior wasn't much better. He only attended one church service before picking Danny up and walking out after an hour. Then he started attending a Mennonite church. People from the community were starting to recognize the signs that Eli was about to leave, and they were right. By the end of the year, Eli had sold all of the dairy cows and was ready to leave the Amish church once again. 
He called his cousin, Abe, and asked if he and Danny could visit his family in Greenville after the holidays. He informed his cousin that he had left the church again and got a new job training horses in Georgia. He wouldn't be able to bring Danny with him to Georgia, so he wanted to know if he could leave him with them. Of course, Abe agreed. Eli spent months in Georgia and then Florida, most of it without Danny, before returning to the farm. Once back home, he quickly upgraded the farm with electricity and telephone lines. He bought a new car and was sporting a clean-shaven face with short hair. He also started buying and training racehorses, something he had gotten in trouble for doing while he was still part of the church. The Amish don't believe in gambling, but Eli was drawn to the world of horse racing. Eli spent the next few years training racing horses, something he bragged to others that he was very good at. He claimed that he was known throughout the country as someone who could break any horse. People from all over hired him to train their horses. This allowed Eli to do some traveling where he learned about the gay scene in various parts of the country. By this time, Eli wasn't really keeping his sexual orientation a secret. The farm had become well-known in the gay scene, being the location of frequent barn parties. He generally kept the rooms in his farmhouse rented out, and the neighbors started noticing that the property became very busy, but they only ever saw men there. His freedom from the Amish church had afforded him the ability to do as he pleased at his farm, use electricity, train racehorses, and entertain young men. Eli also started using classified ads to meet other gay men. Throughout the late 70s and early 80s, Eli would spend most of his nights either going out with friends, having neighbors babysit Danny, or bringing men he met in classifieds back to his house for sex. Some of the men who had met Eli said that the father was very good with Danny while they were there, always making sure that Danny was asleep before they retreated to the master bedroom. Eli, never one to stay in one place for too long, decided to take Danny and move to Colorado. In early 1992, Eli sold his farm for $200,000. The local Amish were upset that more of their land was now in the hands of Englishers. Eli had met a man in Durango, Colorado, who had a ranch and owned a $15,000 stallion. Eli had told the rancher that he was looking to get away from Ohio because he had been shunned by the Amish and it was affecting his son negatively. Eli said that he thought Durango would be a great place to start over and provide his son with a good life. Eli told the man that he thought his ranch in Durango was too small, so he sold it and the two purchased a bigger ranch together. Eli paid the down payment. The couple plus Danny lived in the house together for less than a year. The rancher said that problems between him and Eli started almost immediately. Eli was more interested in being part of the wild gay scene in the area than he was of being in a relationship. Some said they grew concerned when Eli would show up at parties with Danny, allowing him to run around and slap people on the butt. Though some of them wanted to report the incidents to authorities, none of them did out of fear of being asked exactly why they themselves were at a gay party. In January of 1983, the couple had another young man move into the ranch, and it seemed as though he and the rancher got along pretty well. Eli had gone back to putting classified ads in the paper to meet other men. It was the early 80s, and Eli was on a sexual journey with any man he could find in the Durango area, but he was not practicing safe sex. He told one friend, quote, I ain't fucking in no sock, end quote. During this time, he also told everyone he met about his dead wife, though the stories were always a little different. In one version, Ida was already up feeding Danny when she saw the barn on fire and went out to try to put the fire out herself. Some people, he even told that she died in a car accident. 
In February, the rancher finally worked up the courage to leave Eli. At this time, a lot more people in the gay community were hiding their sexual orientation, and he was afraid that Eli would out him, but he was willing to take that chance in order to get out of the house. Eli gladly bought his $5,000 share of the ranch, plus an extra $5,000 worth of farm equipment. The longer Eli had complete freedom, the more his sex drive increased. He would bring groups of guys back to his ranch for parties. He would meet men at bars and take them out to the parking lot for sex, and of course, he was meeting men with classified ads. In October, he attended a big Halloween party dressed as an Amishman. People said he seemed to take pleasure in pulling down his pants and having sex with men dressed in Amish clothes. In November, Eli and Danny disappeared from Durango. Eli had met a man in Austin, Texas through a classified ad and moved in with him. Like all of Eli's relationships, it wasn't long before the couple were on the outs and Eli found his own place. As far as cities in the South are concerned, Austin is probably the most progressive. In the early 80s, there was a thriving gay scene and less in the way of violence toward the community. Eli became active in the gay community working for the Austin chapter of the Texas Gay Rodeo Association. He also started his own construction business where he would hire young gay men to work for him. Glenn Pritchett was born on September 30, 1961 in Logan, Utah, to Robert and Evelyn Pritchett. The family moved to Montana when he was young, and out of the four children, Glenn was the one that couldn't seem to keep himself out of trouble. He never did well in school, and as a teen, he took to drinking and smoking pot. His parents finally got fed up with his troublemaking, so they put him in a foster home. While in and out of youth detention facilities, Glenn met a girl named Sandy Turner, who also had frequent problems with the law. When the couple ran away together, Sandy called her mom and agreed to come back as long as she gave her permission to get married. Her mom agreed, and the 16-year-olds were married on August 15, 1978. Unexpectedly, Glenn cleaned himself up and joined the United States Coast Guard. He went into the service as an electrician, and they sent him to Reedsport, Oregon as his first duty station. While there, the couple had a daughter, and they were happy to soon be relocated from the gloomy Oregon coast. The next duty station was in Staten Island, New York. They had a son in 1982, and soon after, Glenn was discharged from the Coast Guard and the family returned to Montana. The military life had not benefited him the way he had hoped, and Glenn resorted to excessive alcohol to ease the pain. That resulted in a drunk driving charge in 1983 where he was ordered into an alcohol abuse program. Glenn completed the program, but as soon as he was back home, he was back on the sauce. Sandy filed for divorce and Glenn moved out of their apartment. He worked at a restaurant and was regularly in trouble for harassing Sandy. After getting in a fight with her new boyfriend, which was broken up by police, Glenn left town and visited family before ending up in Reno for a few weeks. Eventually, Glenn disappeared from Reno and ended up in Austin. Glenn had taken a construction job working for Eli. He was the only man on the crew that wasn't gay and to the surprise of his ex-wife, he seemed just fine with that. Needing a place to live, Eli rented out a room to Glenn, and eventually another friend moved into the small house in Austin. They became the core of a tight group of close friends who would all go out together to the bars. Even though Glenn was straight, he regularly accompanied the group to gay bars. Though Glenn seemed to be having fun in Austin, he wanted to be back with his wife, a title she continually reminded him was ex-wife. She was about to remarry and wanted Glenn to move on. He refused to let go and would call her all the time, so she eventually changed her number. January of 1985 was the last time she ever heard from Glenn. 
On May 12, 1985, a body was located in a ditch on the side of Clifton Bluff Springs Road in Pilot Knob, just 10 miles or 16 kilometers south of Austin. Days earlier, Raymond Kike had noticed a foul odor and assumed it was an animal carcass. As the days passed and the smell worsened, he drove his truck along the country road until the smell got the strongest. He pulled over to investigate, assuming he would find a dead calf who had wandered away from the herd, but when he looked down into the ditch on the side of the road, he was confronted with a man's body, black from decay and covered in maggots. He hopped back into his truck and went back home where he called the Travis County Sheriff's Office. Raymond met the sheriff on Clifton Bluff Springs Road and pointed out his findings. The unidentified man had been shot in the head and dumped in the ditch. It was unclear how long the body had been there. He was wearing only a pair of cut-off shorts, which were unbuttoned and pushed down around his legs. During the autopsy, maggot activity led the medical examiner to determine the man had died between four to six weeks ago. He had been shot in the left eye, and the ME was able to recover a twenty-two caliber round from his head. His jaw was removed so it could be compared to dental records, and even though the body was badly decomposed, they were able to get fingerprints. The investigators noted that the victim was missing his appendix. Authorities had a difficult time identifying the body. He didn't match anyone in the missing person system. People called and made suggestions that it might be a family member, but when they learned that the unidentified body had an appendectomy, they realized it wasn't their relative. A search of the fingerprints didn't turn up anything locally, so they sent them to the FBI to do a national search, but that would take time. On June 3rd, the FBI made a match of the fingerprints to a set of fingerprints that had been taken when a man named Glenn Pritchard had joined the Coast Guard. Now that they had a name, they were able to look up records and found that Glenn had been questioned about suspicious activity in a parking lot the previous December. At the time, he was with a man named Eli Stutzman, and both said they lived at the same address on Banton Road. Two detectives arrived at Eli's house on June 15th. Eli answered the door, and the investigators told him that they were there to investigate the murder of Glenn Pritchard. One detective noted that Eli didn't seem surprised by the news. Eli told them that Glenn worked for him, and he allowed the man to sleep on his couch in exchange for $50 a week. He went on to tell them that he hadn't seen Glenn for weeks. Glenn had a family emergency in Montana that he needed to go to, and Eli had dropped him off at the bus station. As far as he knew, Glenn would be back after he was done in Montana. The detective asked Eli if he had any guns, and Eli told him he had a twenty-two caliber rifle and a 16-gauge shotgun. As the detective took a look at the weapons, Eli said he hadn't fired either of them recently. Then, they moved their interview down to the police station. Now that it was confirmed that Eli owned the same caliber weapon that was used to kill Glenn, he became even more feasible as a suspect. The detective still didn't like how casual the man was about finding out his friend was murdered. Most people would ask a ton of questions, where they were found, how they were killed, if there were any suspects, if his family knew. Eli didn't ask anything. The detectives asked Eli to go over the exact timeline of when he met Glenn and when Glenn left for Montana. Then they asked him if he would take a polygraph, and Eli agreed. Since they didn't have anything to hold him on, and he seemed to be cooperating with the investigation, they let him go. Detectives questioned other people who knew Glenn and Eli. One friend told him that he had gone out of town on April 19th, and when he left, Glenn was still staying at Eli's house. When he returned on May 7th, Glenn was gone, and Eli told him that he had dropped Glenn off at the bus station on May 5th. Glenn's body was discovered one week later, and it was determined that he had been dead for at least a month. 
it was impossible for Eli to have taken Glenn to the bus station on the 5th. Mark Taylor, Eli's next-door neighbor on Banton Road, gave some information to the detectives a few days after they visited the house. He told them that he heard Eli and Glenn argue quite often, but the last time happened in the middle of April and he never saw Glenn again. The neighbor also told them that the day after the detectives had questioned him, Eli had come over and asked if they could trace one bullet back to a specific gun. Mark said that Eli had acted really nervous ever since Glenn disappeared, but after detectives questioned him, he got even worse. The neighbor said that the day after detectives were there, he saw Eli packing his truck, and he hasn't seen him since. It turned out that Eli had fled the area, and nobody knew where he or his son went. Not the police, not his friends, not his employees. Eli was now the suspect in another death, and it wouldn't be long before more bodies would turn up. Listen to part two of the Eli Stutzman story on our next episode, which will air this Thursday. If you want to learn more about Eli Stutzman, you can read the book Abandoned Prayers by Greg Olson. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So... If you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. 
You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4-kilo Irish turkeys are just 39.99 and incredible unsmoked center-cut Irish ham is now just 13.59 for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King prawn cocktail and oak and peat cold smoked salmon are just 6 euro. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CERTAIreland.ie 